Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and in this episode we start a whole new series called Mongols and Mamluks and the first episode is called Genghis Khan. Why Mongols and Mamluks? Well, in the last 50 years of Crusader history, from the 1240s to the fall of the last Crusader city in 1291, two totally new empires would take centre stage and eclipse the great age of the Crusaders. Indeed, these two new empires would dominate not just the last years of Crusaders history, but also of world history. The first was a real game changer that profoundly altered Chinese, Asian and Islamic history, and that was the rise of the Mongol Empire. This began with the creation of a Mongol superstate by the extraordinary Genghis Khan, which stretched from China to Europe and was one of the largest empires in history. Now, as far as the Crusaders were concerned, the Mongols initially actually offered a ray of hope because they might convert to Christianity. And they certainly caused more harm to the Islamic world than they did to the Christian one. The other new empire to emerge was the Mamluk Empire based in Egypt. This would become the major new force in the Middle East and the Mamluks would ultimately destroy the Crusaders. But before we get to that, it's the age of the Mongols that came first. So without further ado, let's begin with the story of the great Genghis Khan, who created one of the world's largest empires pretty much single-handed. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Genghis Khan's empire was basically a conglomeration of clans. He made no attempt to interfere with the old organisation of the tribes as clans under hereditary chieftains. He merely superimposed his own family, the Altin Uruk or Golden Clan, and set up a central government controlled by his own household and family. And he placed under the free clans large numbers of slaves taken from the tribes that had resisted him and had been conquered. Serfs in thousands were given to his relations and friends. At the Kurultai, or the Great Assembly of Mongols of 1206, his mother, Holun, and his brother, Temugu Otichin, were each given 10,000 families as chattels, and his young sons 5 or 6,000 each. Tribes and even cities that submitted to him peaceably were left without interference, so long as they respected his overriding laws and paid to his tax collectors the heavy tribute that he demanded. To bind his countries together, he promulgated a code of laws, the Yasa, which was to supersede the customary laws of the steppes. The Yasa, which was issued in instalments throughout his reign, laid down specifically the rights and privileges of the clan chieftains, the conditions of military and other service due to the great Khan, and the principles of taxation as well as of criminal, civil and commercial law. Supreme autocrat though he was, Genghis intended that he and his successors should be bound by the law. 
As soon as the administration of his empire was arranged, Genghis set about its expansion. He now had a large army to whose organization he had also given careful attention. Every tribesman between the ages of 14 and 60 was by Mongol and Turkish tradition liable for military service and the great annual winter hunting expeditions necessary for providing meat for the army and the court served as manoeuvres to keep the soldiers in training. By temperament, the tribesmen were used to giving their leaders an unquestioning obedience and the leaders from bitter experience knew that they must now obey the great Khan. His subjects had also, like all nomadic tribes, a yearning to move beyond the horizon and a fear lest their pasture lands and forests should be exhausted. The Khan offered them new countries and great booty and hordes of slaves. It was an army of cavalry, archers and lancers mounted on swift ponies, men and beasts accustomed from birth to hard living and to making long journeys across deserts with very little food and drink. Such a combination of speed of movement, discipline and vast numbers had never been seen before. The three great states that now bordered the Mongols were the Qin Empire on the east with its capital at Peking, then the Tangut Kingdom of Sayasai along the upper reaches of the Yellow River where a dynasty of Tibetan origin ruled over a mixed sedentary population of Mongols, Turks and Chinese, and to the southwest the kingdom of the Karakitai who were Buddhist nomads from Manchuria who'd been displaced by the Qin emperors early in the 12th century and had fought their way westward to found an empire at the expense of the Uyghurs of the Tarim Basin and the Muslim Turks of Yarkhan and Khotan. Their monarch, the Gurkhan, was already a formidable factor in Eastern Muslim politics and the Uyghurs of Turfan were his clients. The weakest of the three was Sayasai, which therefore Genghis attacked the first. By 1212, its king had accepted his rule. Invasions of the Qin Empire followed. A series of tremendous battles put the whole countryside, as far as the Yellow Sea and Shantung, into his power. But the Mongols were unused to attack fortified places and the great walled cities of China held out one by one against him. It was only when a Qin engineer, Liu Pulin, entered Genghis's service that his armies began to learn the art of siege warfare. By 1226, the Qin emperor was reduced to vassalage. Already by 1221, the Qin province of Manchuria had been annexed and Korea had acknowledged Mongol rule. When the last Qin emperor died in 1223, his remaining provinces were incorporated into the Mongol empire. Meanwhile, Genghis had extended his power southwestward, at this time, the Khwarizmian Turkish Empire of Mohammed Shah was at its height. Mohammed was master of all Asia from Kurdistan and the Persian Gulf to the Aral Sea, the Pamirs and to the Indus. The Gurkhan of the Karakitai found him a disquieting neighbour and sought to embarrass him by inciting his vassals in Transoxiana to rebel against him. The resultant war seriously weakened the Karakitai and while Mohammed Shah annexed their southern territory, the throne of the Gurkhan was usurped by a Naiman refugee prince 
Kutschluk. Kutschluk, an Astorian Christian by birth, had become a Buddhist on his marriage to a Karakitai princess. But unlike the Gurkhans, he was intolerant towards his Christian and Muslim subjects. His unpopularity gave Genghis his chance to intervene. When a Mongol army swept down into the Turfan Basin, it was welcomed as a force of liberators. The Uyghurs gladly submitted to Mongol rule and Kutschluk was restricted to a small principality in the Tarim Valley. This expansion brought Genghis into direct connection with the territory of the Khwarizmian Turks. Mohammed Shah was not the man to tolerate a rival as ambitious as himself. Embassies were exchanged between the two potentates, but Mohammed was affronted when Genghis demanded that as Khan of the Turco-Mongol nations, he should be regarded as the ruler of the Khwarizmian prince. In 1218, a great caravan of Muslim merchants travelled from Mongolia, and with them were a hundred Mongols sent on a special mission to the Khwarizmian court. When the caravan reached Otrur on the Jazaktis River in Mohammed's dominions, the local governor massacred the travellers and stole their goods, half of which was sent to the Shah. It was a provocation that Genghis could not ignore. Seeing that war was about to break out, Kuchluk made a bid to revive the Karakitai kingdom. In a brilliant campaign, the Mongol general Hebe pursued Kuchluk and his army through the length of his dominions and finally slew him in a valley high in the Pamirs. With Kuchluk gone, Genghis was ready to set out against the Khwarizmians. It would be a formidable task. The Khwarizmian leader Mohammed Shah was said to be able to put half a million men into the field, and Genghis would be operating a thousand miles from his home. In the late summer of 1219, the Mongol army of 200,000 men left its camp by the river Itya. The Khan's vassals, such as the prince of the Ugars, joined him on his westward march. Mohammed Shah, uncertain where the Mongols would strike, divided his troops between the line of the Jigzartes and the passes of Fagana, with his main body waiting by the great cities of Bukhara and Samarkand. The Mongol army made straight for the middle Jaxartes and crossed the river by Otrur. Part of the army was left to besiege the town, a slow task, for the Mongols were still unpractised at siege warfare. Part moved down the river to attack the Khwarizmian army on its banks. Part moved up the river to cut off the army in Fagana, and Genghis and his main troops marched straight on Bukhara. Kara. He arrived there in February 1220. Almost at once, the civilians opened the gates of the city to him. The Turks in the citadel resisted for a few days and were then slaughtered to a man, together with the Muslim imams who had encouraged them to fight. From Bukhara, Genghis moved to Samarkand, while Mohammed Shah, unable to trust his troops, retired to his capital of Urgenji on the Oxus near Kiva. At Samarkand, where Genghis was joined by his sons, who had captured Otrur, the Turkish garrison at once surrendered, hoping to be enlisted into the conqueror's army. 
but he distrusted such unreliable soldiers and put them all to death. A few civilians tried to organise resistance, but in vain. They too were slain. Genghis next sent his sons to lay siege to Urgenji. There the defence was more formidable, and the quarrels between the Khan's sons delayed its capture for a few months. Meanwhile, Mohammed Shah fled to Khorasan, pursued by an army under Genghis's most trusted generals, Subatai and Hebe. He escaped from his pursuers only to die broken and deserted in December 1220 on a little island in the Caspian Sea. A better fight was put up by Muhammad's son, Jalal al-Din, who joined the Khorizmian army in Fergana and retreated into Afghanistan. At Parvan, just north of the Hindu Kush, he severely defeated the Mongol army, sent to suppress him. Genghis himself had moved across the Oxus, past Balkh, which submitted to him, and was spared to Bamian in the central Hindu Kush. The fortress held out against him, and in the course of the siege, his favourite grandson, Mutugan, was slain. When therefore the city was taken by assault, not a living creature was left alive in it. Meanwhile, his son Tului and his son-in-law Tugutshar campaigned further to the west, capturing Merv, out of whose male population only 400 trained artisans were spared, and Nishapur, where Tugutshar was killed and which suffered an all-too-similar fate. Tugutshar's widow presided in person over the massacre. The artisans from both cities were sent to Mongolia. In the autumn of 1221, Genghis advanced through Afghanistan to to attack Jalal al-Din and caught up with him on the banks of the Indus. In a desperate battle on the 24th of November, the Khorizmian army was destroyed. Jalal al-Din himself fled across the river and took refuge with the king of Delhi. His children fell into the victors' hands and were massacred. Genghis spent about a year in Afghanistan. The huge city of Herat, which had at first submitted quietly to the Mongols, had revolted after Jalal al-Din's victory at Parvan. A Mongol army besieged it for several months. On its capture in June 1222, its whole population, amounting to hundreds of thousands, was put to death. The slaughter lasted for a week. The ruined cities and wasted lands were provided with Mongol administrators, supported by enough troops to keep the cowed inhabitants in order. Genghis then returned to Transoxiana, which was less desolate. There he installed a Khorizmian governor, Masud Yalach, with Mongol advisers to watch and control him. Masud's father, Mahmud Yalach, was sent eastward to govern Pekin, an honorific method of further ensuring Masud's loyalty. Genghis recrossed the Jigzartes in the spring of 1223 and journeyed slowly back across the steppes, reaching the Irtia in the summer of 1224 and his home on the Tula River next spring. The fantastic conquests of Genghis Khan did not pass unnoticed by the Crusaders in Syria. It was known that he was attacking the greatest Muslim power in Central Asia, and the Nestorians, with their churches spreading all across Asia, could testify that he was not ill-disposed towards the Christians. The Khan himself was a shamanist, but he liked to consult Christian and Muslim priests, with a preference for the former. His sons were married to Christian princesses, Karaites, who had 
considerable influence at his court, it might well be that he would serve as an ally for Christendom. These hopes were somewhat shaken in the course of 1221. The army sent by Genghis under Subutai and Hebe to capture Muhammad Shah failed in its immediate purpose. The Shah eluded them and doubled back to the Caspian Sea, but the Mongol generals moved on to the west in the summer of 1220. They captured and pillaged Ray near the modern Tehran, but spared most of the inhabitants. Next, Qum was taken and its inhabitants all massacred. A similar fate befell Kazvin and Senjan, but Hamadan submitted in time and escaped after paying an exorbitant ransom. The emir of Azerbaijan brought off an attack on Tabriz and the Mongols passed by in February 1221 to attack the Christian kingdom of Georgia. King George IV, son of Queen Tamar, led out the Georgian cavalry to oppose their advance, and he was routed at Kunani, just south of Tiflis. It was a disaster from which the Georgian army never quite recovered, but the conquerors turned back southward. Hamadan had revolted and must be punished, and on their way to sack and destroy the city, they only paused to pillage Maraga in Azerbaijan. They spent the remainder of the year in northwest Persia. Early in 1222, they turned north again, and after ravaging the eastern Georgian provinces and defeating the troops sent to restrain them, they passed on along the Caspian coast, through the Caspian gates towards the territory of the Kipchaks between the Volga and the Don. The Kipchaks hastily allied themselves with the tribes of the northern Caucasus, the Alans and the Lesgians, but when Subutai and Hebe offered them a share of the booty, they did not intervene while the Mongols crushed the Caucasians. Inevitably, the Mongols next turned on them. They hoped to save themselves by bribing the Russians to come to their help, but on the 31st of May 1222, a great Russian army, led by the princes of Kiev, Gallic, Jenigov and Smolensk was destroyed on the banks of the Kalka River near the Sea of Azov. The Mongol generals did not follow up their victory. They entered the Crimea and pillaged the Genoese trading station at Soldaya, then swept away to the east, only pausing to destroy an army of the Kama Bulgars and ravage their country. They rejoined Genghis Khan by the river Jaxartes early in 1223. The Western victims of this vast raid optimistically hoped it was an isolated phenomenon, a ghastly cataclysm that would not recur. But Genghis was delighted with his generals. They had not only done some valuable reconnoitering and had discovered that there was no army in Western Asia that could stand up to them, but also they had so terrified the nations there by their ruthlessness that when the time should come for serious invasion, no one would dare to oppose them. When Genghis Khan died in 1227, his dominion stretched from Korea to Persia and from the Indian Ocean to the frozen plains of Siberia. No other man has ever created so vast an empire. It is impossible to explain his success by some theory that the Mongols had any economic urge for expansion. It can only be said that they were a suitable instrument for an expansionist leader. Genghis was the 
the architect of his destiny, but he himself remains mysterious. In appearance, we are told he was tall and vigorous with eyes like a cat's. It is certain that his physical endurance was great. It is certain, too, that his personality profoundly impressed everyone who had dealings with him. His skill as an organiser was superb, and he knew how to choose men and how to handle them. He had a genuine respect for learning and was always ready to spare a scholar's life, but unfortunately few of his victims were given the time to prove their scholarship. He adopted the Ugar alphabet for the Mongols and founded Mongol literature. In religious matters, he was tolerant and ready to give aid to any religious sect that did not oppose him politically. He insisted on a just and orderly government. The roads were cleared of brigands, a postal service was introduced, and under his patronage, commerce flourished and great caravans would pass in safety every year across the breadth of Asia. But there is no doubt that he was completely ruthless. He had no regard for human life and no sympathy for human suffering. Millions of innocent townsfolk perished in the course of his wars. Millions of innocent peasants saw their fields and orchards destroyed. His empire was founded on human misery. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll continue with the extraordinary story of the Mongol Empire. (laughs) 